Or, if you're Donald Trump, bye-bye. This is the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your Twitter feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney Terrell, the author of the novel The Good Lieutenant. And I'm Vivi Ganeshananthan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel Love Marriage. I think we should do a coup. I like that. That's a that's a nice interior rhyme. It does seem like the in thing these days to do a coup. Do we? Is it actually an interior rhyme? Is do a coup? Is that is that what that is? Technically, do we need to get a? Poet they don't let me teach poetry. Okay. They don't let me. If teach We screwed it up. Poets sent us a note. We we're just prose people. But if we're gonna do a coup, can we do it at LitHub? Just like say that we're running LitHub, and we've never heard of Johnny Diamond or Emily Firetog or any of the great people that work there. We're just they can send our stories to us. That sounds great. I'll just hang on a second. I'm just gonna call the landscaping company to arrange the press conference. <laughs> I'm sorry, that's already been done. We gotta have to find somewhere else to have our press conference. Well, damn it. All right, I got this. It's uh, LitHub, right? So we'll announce our coup in Reading, Pennsylvania. Huh? Huh? Get it? Huh? It's pronounced Reading. If I say it's reading, Whitney, it's reading. And if I say there was massive vote fraud in Pennsylvania, then there was. And of course, we should run LitHub. I'm preparing for a smooth transition to a second Ganeshananthan Terrell administration. I see what you did there. I see where I am on the ticket. <laughs> I, 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 I should have known that was coming. This conversation is why we've decided to talk about the 2020 election and its aftermath with someone else. And fortunately, two amazing writers have volunteered. In the second half of the show, we'll be talking to Gerald Walker, whose excellent book of essays, How to Make a Slave, has been nominated for the National Book Award. But first, we're going to talk to Jess Walter, a past finalist for the National Book Award and winner of the Edgar Allan Poe Award. Jess is the author of seven novels, one book of short stories, and one nonfiction book. His work has been translated into 32 languages, and his fiction has been selected three times for Best American Short Stories, as well as the Pushcart Prize and Best American Non-Required Reading. His stories, essays, and journalism have appeared in Harper's, Esquire, Playboy, McSweeney's, Tin House, Plowshares, The New York Times, The Washington Post, and many others. His previous novel, Beautiful Ruins, was a number one New York Times bestseller and spent more than a year on the bestseller list. He joined in our sixth episode to talk about Beautiful Ruins and the Trump administration, and we're excited to welcome him back with another bestseller, his newest novel, The Cold Millions. Welcome to the show, Jess. Thanks, Sugi. I can't believe I was on the sixth episode. This is like a very special reunion show or something when Fonzie comes back from the war or something. (laughs) That was how we were thinking of it, for sure. I'm so excited. (laughs) And I I love the podcast. I was just listening to the Halloween episode, and I can't watch Poltergeist either. <laughs> I just can't watch any horror movies there. Uh, even before the last four years, I haven't been able to. Oh my goodness, the last four years. Um, yeah, their own horror show. Um, thank you so much for being such a supporter of the show and, of, of course, for joining us uh, multiple times. It's a treat to have you back. And in December of 2017, we were just talking about this. Doesn't seem like it was that long ago, and yet it seems like eternity. And we asked you about the literary elements of the Trump administration. Astonishingly, we, we were like, there are literary elements. We've stuck to that for a few years. And you admitted that the Trump administration had certain narrative elements that were familiar from literature, betrayal, father-son rivalry. And you said, quote, what it doesn't seem to have is that other hallmark of literature, thematic depth or intelligence. Are you sticking with that for the literary quality of the post-Trump era? I kind of feel like Nate Silver having to go out and explain myself. Um, uh, (laughs) I have no predictive powers, clearly, uh, at all. But, um, yeah, I do think, 
I think it's fascinating and it's really interesting to watch. But it, if I was reading this novel, I would want more depth. You know, it's like King Lear. You know, I'm really interested to see what the Trump children do now and how they divide up, you know, his his broke ass empire. Who's going to take what debt? Who's going to you know serve various times in prison? And um, uh, so, yeah, I, I, I do think that there are literary elements, but, um, uh, you know, it. He, when you surround yourself with sycophants and criminals and the like, um, it becomes a Leonard Elmore story, you know, and um, and so it, it it lacks that interiority, you know. I don't really need to know what Michael Cohen was thinking. I actually wrote a very short story from his point of view, and it was a really shallow pool to wait around in. <laughs> well. <laughs> You know that there's this march going on right now. We're recording on Saturday, uh, what, the 14th. So there's the Million MAGA March. It seemed like not a terrible crowd, but definitely not a million people. Uh, And if he wasn't proposing that, if he had just acknowledged that uh, he lost the election, this would be a totally normal thing to have happened. Like, okay, your supporters come and say thanks. You did a good job. We still like you. We're moving on. But instead, because the president can't admit that he lost, it has this sinister quality to it. Yeah, it'll be really interesting to see what it's hard. It's hard to imagine a character like this in repose. You know, um, what happens to a Trumpian revolution? And again, to go to literature, you know, I think of Jack Cade in um, in Henry the Fourth Part Two. You know, when these things tend to burn out like a quick flame, and what's left are the true believers and for me, the most disappointing thing about the Trump years always was realizing that the asshole ceiling in America is as high as 40 <laughs> percent. You know, I, I knew that 20 percent of people I um, I had no no business, you know, thinking of as as similar to me. But to imagine that that Trump could pull 71 million votes or however many it's going to turn out to be is so discouraging. Uh, And his coalition is built of rich people who don't want to pay taxes um, and, you know, people for whom uh, racism is acceptable and um, and then, you know, people voting all sorts of conservative issues. And I do I still think those people are going to fall away. And I still think he's going to to be a much more marginalized figure. But I also believe I said something about the rats scurrying away from the ship <laughs> and they are scurrying so slowly. They are um, they're going back to the Lido deck and playing shuffleboard. And, um, you know, they his people really seem on board. And it's as distressing to me as it was in 2016. And uh, and as it was on election day to see this many people, you know, still buying uh, the grift. Well, that was the context, and it wasn't just we were talking about his voters, but more we in that you're referencing the conversation from our podcast in in December 2017, where you talked about his. This was right after Flynn had gotten indicted, and um, you we were talking about sort of in the terms of mob bosses and how eventually when the guys start getting in trouble at the top, everyone flips, and then that's the end of it. And but. There's a a, the structure for Trump seems to be still among the leadership in the Republican Party who don't want to say like, hey, you lost the election, even though it's clear that he did. They still you talked a lot about self-interest. You said as soon as it's in their self-interest to oppose this guy or walk away from him, they will. And it just seems like maybe we haven't reached that point yet. I noticed 
people are debating why did Trump fire all these people in the Defense Department over the last week, five different, four or five different people. I think it's because he still wants to show that he can hurt you if you oppose him. He's trying to continue to force it, people to think it's in their self-interest not to get in this guy's way. He won't have that power for very much longer. I, I don't think you can separate his power from the power he has over those 71 million voters. And that's that's the reason the rats aren't scurrying, because they what they, they don't really fear. You know, Mitch McConnell doesn't fear being fired by Donald Trump. You know, he's... Um, uh, rat isn't right. He's, you know, he, he has the survival power of, of a cockroach. He will be there, you know, as long as, as long as the building stands. But what, what they do fear are those voters and his power over them. And, and I do think that that's where he's going to be marginalized. But in the next two years, I still think you're going to have to go visit Trump and if you're a Republican and win him over and visit him on his gold toilet and get his blessing and, you know, and I, and I think that further fractures the Republican Party. I think, you know, we as Democrats, as liberals, as progressives, we are so we're so aware of our own um, fractures of our own battles. And I think I think the right is in you, that's a mercurial person to have as your as your um, party leader in exile. And I, I don't think it bodes well for them in the long run. You know, how long the long run is, I don't know. Uh, and in the meantime, yeah, they're very fearful. And especially with the Georgia, um, with, with the Senate coming down to two seats in Georgia, uh, Raphael Warnock and John Ossoff, those two seats, if the Democrats win them, we have a split Senate and um, and uh, and suddenly the Democrats, you know, ha- Vice President Harris is is the deciding vote. And so uh, until the Georgia election, you st- probably won't see um, Republican senators and representatives backing away. But I but I do think in the long run the the GOP will pay for hitching their wagon to this um, uh, to Trump. I really think they will. One of the reasons I think that they're not backing off is because, as, as you said, with um, Georgia, and then while they're waiting, right, they're not passing COVID relief, um, you know, the asshole ceiling. Like, that's definitely like a reality series that, and that and Broke Ass Empire series that are going to be picked up by Bravo in a second. You know, like, I I would, I just, it's like, he's the, he's the rat captain or something. But um, yeah, I mean, there's so many connections between your book also in the way that um, things are going now, like it was really, it was, it was interesting to read and think about all of the ways that these cycles just repeat. And these questions are like, to what limits will our leaders go? Um, How many of our lives will they spend? And like, we seem to be so expendable still, like they haven't learned. Or they have, um, you know, and, and again, I think so much of this is about the pace of change and these sort of waves and currents that, that come over. And it's one of the things that, that caused me to write The Cold Millions in the first place was trying to figure out how to write about income inequality back in 2014, 15, 16, and do it in a way that didn't feel didactic, that didn't feel preachy, um, but that felt alive in some other way. And that kind of connected with this idea to write about this period in my hometown that I'd always been fascinated by, this kind of border between the old West, the frontier that we think of, and a more modern world. And so, yeah, I, I, 
I, I do think these things come up again. One of the most disappointing things for, for me was to see Trump as a figure of populism and class um, division, because he's not the person I think of when I think of, of populism and class, you know, and, and the fact that it was portrayed that way has been a huge disappointment. So I wonder if we could maybe start off um, talking about those parallels and connections uh, by having you read to us a little bit from the book first. Yeah, sure. So the, the Cold Millions is about these two um, itinerant brothers, two hobos, Gig and Rye Dolan in 1909, uh, America, specifically Spokane, Washington, my hometown. And they are, um, uh, they are like many of the people at that time, hopping trains and going from town to town to look for work in agriculture, mining, timber. And they've arrived in Spokane, Washington, which is um, where seven main rail lines come together, a kind of tramp central station, they call it. And, uh, and to get a job at that time, you had to line up at what were called job agents or job sharks. And they would send you out to the work site for a dollar. You'd have to pay a dollar for the right to work. And then often they would split that dollar with the foreman and then fire you and send another crew out to make another dollar. Um, and then once harvest was over, they would, and they didn't need these workers anymore, they would send the cops to rough them up and drive them out of town. And um, so Gig and Rye are sort of in the center of this and specifically the, the industrial workers of the world, the nascent labor unions Union that um, was organizing these workers and trying to get them to stand up for their rights. Uh, in Spokane, they, they were outlawed from speaking on the streets. And so in November of 1909, um, they had the free speech protests, um, one of the first nonviolent protests in American history where they just stood on soapboxes and spoke. Uh, and this is um, in the midst of those protests. At the south end of the block stood another line of men, six uniformed cops led by Big John Sullivan. All of them had some lesser version of the chief's facial hair, bush beards or marmot sideburns, and Rye wondered if they'd chosen the force by sheer whiskers alone. If the chief had looked unhappy the day before, today he looked like he might rip the arms off the first man to speak. This turned out to be Walsh, who took a national biscuit crate from another man and set it on the street in front of the worst job shop, the notorious Red Line Agency. A buzz went through the crowd. Here it comes. Sullivan was walking before Walsh even started speaking. Brothers and sisters, fellow were. The labor man stumbled on the box, nearly lost his balance until Frank Little caught him, patted his coat and pushed him back up, a ripple of laughter passing through the crowd. In that moment, Rye thought Gig might be right about this being like a show at the Comique Theater. The tramps would do their tramp thing, and the cops would do their cop thing, and everything could return to what it was, Gig with a good story to tell the next time at Jimmy Durkin's. On the box, Walsh removed his hat and spread out his arms like a preacher. We're here to stand against injustice, to cheers and boos, in peaceful exercise of our right to speak out against the brutal tyranny of the city government and its corrupt bargain with these job agencies. Walsh was not a small man, and the crate made him a foot taller, but he seemed like a toy when Chief Sullivan marched up two thick cops on either side. Rye recognized one of the cops as the bull goon, Hub Clegg. Sullivan yanked Walsh off the box and grabbed him by the neck like a chicken he might shake dead. 
He threw him to the ground and slammed a boot through the biscuit crate, Clegg wrestling Walsh's arms behind his back. Disperse, the chief yelled to the crowd. Next man steps on a box, gets it worse, and worse for each after. No one moved, neither wobblies nor crowd, and the chief turned and said something to Clegg. Then a voice in the crowd called out, hold the line, and that brought a cheer and more boos, a man calling, kill the bums, more cheers and chatter, the crowd speaking all at once, drowning out Sullivan. Then the people in front of Rye snapped their attention to the left as if a baseball had been lined up the middle, and Rye stood on tiptoes to see over the hats. Another box had appeared in the street, half a block north, and Frank Little was climbing on. This was the Union's plan, after Walsh was arrested, to go up one after the other in different spots, force the cops to scramble one end of downtown to the other, arrest dozens of them, and fill the jail with the only weapons they had, their bodies. Brothers and sisters, Little began, but before he could say another word, a cop was on him and threw him to the street. He disappeared in the crowd like someone slipping beneath waves. Disperse, Sullivan yelled again, and the crowd took a few steps back but didn't leave. Wobblies pressing forward, onlookers straining to see every window on Stephen Street now full of people sticking their heads out, and a man yelling from a second-story window of a lawyer's office, This is freedom? You call this freedom? A few minutes later, the same man appeared in the doorway of the building, face bloodied, pushed into the street by one of the security men, his glasses skittering onto the cobblestone as he cried, What is my crime? What is my crime? The crowd rumbled and muttered like it hadn't chosen which team to root for, heads swinging left and right at signs of action. To the south, a young woman in a plain gray smock yelled, Wake up! Wake up! And a cop pulled her down the street. Then the crowd swung the other way to the north end of Stevens, where Frank Little had gone limp and was being dragged by the arms, his legs bumping on streetcar tracks. His soapbox was still in the street, and a long-bearded man climbed up and began singing with a heavy Slav accent, Oh, say, can you hear? The first lines of the working man's star-spangled banner, Coming near and more near. That man went down, too, pounded by a security goon. But another man was already on the box behind him, and Rye yelled, Jules, as if he might warn his friend, who either didn't know the workers' anthem or didn't like it, because he started singing in French, C'est la lutte finale, groupant nude et demain. And a cop standing just a few feet away cocked his head in confusion. But Hub Clegg had no hesitation and stepped in behind Jules with a raised nightstick, Rye reflexively closing his eyes rather than see the blow land. But when someone near him yelled, Oh! Ryan opened his eyes and tried to fight through the crowd. That was when another voice, Chief Sullivan's thundered, Boys! And a great surge came, and this was no longer a show or a baseball game, but a full-on riot. Cops and bull goons mowing down Stevens, swinging nightsticks to clear the street, and people running, falling, being trampled. Rye swept up in a wave, moving north, his last view of Jules, a bloodied face, and his hands shackled behind his back. Thank you. That's a really amazing... Uh, and very well written scene. It's hard to write uh, big action, like group scenes like that. I love the way that you talk about the way the attention of the crowd moves. Like a baseball oh, had thanks. been lined up the middle of the street. I yeah. thought that was, that was nice. Thanks. Um, the line in that passage that stood out for me is that moment when the man is demanding, what is my crime? You know, and I was thinking about, even though I know these riots are separated by many years, uh, from the protests over George Floyd's deaths in the cities across the country this summer, including Portland, which isn't so far from Spokane, is, is like on the map of your book, you know. Um, 
But I couldn't help think of the unmarked vans filled with these sort of nameless government soldiers who didn't have, you know, a tag on there sort of patrolling Portland this summer and arresting people without telling them why they were being arrested. Yeah, um, it's interesting. When I started writing the novel, I was not, you know, thinking specifically, of course, about the Black Lives Matter protests. But certainly I was thinking about unrest. I was thinking about civil disobedience. I was thinking about protests. I spent much of the last four years um, protesting for women's rights, for um, uh, for science. Um, you know, I and, and in Spokane, my kids and I went to three Black Lives Matter protests. And so it very much felt like this... Um, like it was in the air, you know, and uh, and to watch the way violence against protesters has been kind of normalized. I chose these really young protagonists. Um, Rye Dolan is 17, Gig is 23, and the hero of the novel is a woman, is a real character named Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, who was 19 and pregnant and was leading the free speech movement in Spokane. And I chose them because over the last four years, I've been so inspired by watching youthful activism, um, whether it's the, the shooting survivors from Parkland High School um, demanding you know, basic gun laws um, or students walking out of their schools for a response to climate change. And then watching, being inspired by the young organizers of Black Lives, the Black Lives Matter protests. Um, when people take to the streets, there's there's something really going on. And um, yeah, it, it I can't say that I that I knew the summer was going to erupt in uh, in protests, but it certainly felt familiar as I was putting the finished finishing touches on the book. The main characters that you're talking about, of course, are members of the industrial workers of the world or the yeah. IWW, and, and they're deeply opposed the to the bosses. Yeah, yeah the Wobblies. The, they're deeply opposed to the bosses and the cops, and especially Gig Dolan. And Gig is a non-college-educated white male. So by today's sort of demographics and polling, um, he's, he's overwhelmingly likely, if he were with us today on the show, he would maybe be talking about his support for Donald Trump. Uh, and he might have cheered for the police while they beat down Black Lives Matter protesters. How did we get here? You know, I'm not so sure about that. I I, I have always bristled at blaming uh, Trump on working class whites. It's whites. <laughs> you know, Trump got 55% of the vote of people who make over $100,000. Uh, Biden got 55% of people who make less than $50,000. Um, we have huge divides in this country, urban versus rural. Um, but I, I, to blame Trump on working class white voters, I always thought was wrong. Um, yes, the labor has been lost by the Democratic Party, but that's because unions have been systematically destroyed since the 1980s. Um, unions that represented workers. And so many of these workers um, are, are adrift. Um, I don't blame the Democratic Party for this. I blame the Republican Party for um, uh, since, since Richard Nixon and the Southern strategy embracing the racial divide as a way to pry some white voters away from voting in their own economic interest. But um, I don't know. I, th I think someone like Gig Dolan 
you know, and it may be because I grew up in a labor Democrat family. I'm, I'm a working class kid. I'm a first generation college student. I'm, I'm the first male in my direct line to graduate from high school. And so um, the, the men, the working class men that I knew, my grandfathers, my dad, they were decent people and they were, and they valued fairness over everything. Um, I don't think, I, I don't think the working class has been lost. I think the Republican Party um, hopefully will have to have a day of reckoning for the Southern strategy and for exposing the fact that white voters, whether they're wealthy or poor and, and more alarmingly wealthy, um, you know, there are there are well-educated people who vote for Trump um, you know, despite their education. And to me, there's such a failure to educate the working class and, and you know, people who are living in poverty in America, the fact that we've made college so expensive. Uh, for me, it was the only social escalator that existed was an education. And I don't feel like that's true anymore. And to me, that would be job one. You educate people, they tend to fall away from the sorts of beliefs that uh, Trump and the larger Republican Party have been able to exploit. Maybe that's why the Republicans don't ever want to fund education, including in my state. Uh it's you so know. cynical. Do you think it's? I mean, I sometimes wonder if that's possible. You know, well, that's it's absolutely like absolutely true. Oh, yeah. it's not and, even an educated elect. I mean, who you know to not want an educated electorate to preserve what small bit of power you have would be one of the most cynically villainous things I could imagine. Well, that is happening right now. There's no question in my mind. Yeah, I mean, it seems like right. It's, I mean, it's and it's not a recent project. It's like a half century, maybe longer project of the Republican Party to defund public education. This is like one of my rants. Um, yeah. So I'll try not oh. to deliver the entire thing. But um, Rant away. <laughs> you, can, you can borrow my soapbox. Well, I think it's, it's going to take so long to undo. And I think one of the things that's really interesting about what you're saying about, right, the kind of working class movement politics that you're writing about. Um, and I think also like a lot of movements um, from people of color are the ways in which those communities are involved in a kind of community education that is outside public education. And so they have sometimes a really, like often a really sophisticated intellectual discourse that does not come out of public education because it comes from communities that can't have not been able to rely on public education that have been in at segregated or underfunded schools where they can't trust the, the education to be good. And so the community takes on responsibility for education in a different way. And I mean, it makes a lot of sense to me that what you're saying about, you know, like maybe maybe that's the community that Gig Dolan is coming from where. But he does educate himself. Really. Yeah, I mean, that's the That's the thing that I the thing I wanted to say is like, so you think about the Black Lives Matter movement and you're talking about uh, people of color in the working class who are trying to fight for their rights. And then, of course, you look at this history of of working class whites doing it. And the, the, it's the Southern strategy has been to make sure that these two groups never get together and work together. And that to me is the holy grail. We talk about it occasionally on this podcast, but I just wish I'm still waiting for a politician to say, what I want to do is unite the white working class and the, and, the, and anyone who's not white in the working class and make them work together. Cause that would give us power. And I think the Sanders wing, the AOC wing of the democratic party is, is doing that. Um, it's it's going to be hard to sell socialism in those rural areas because 
they've been indoctrinated against it for so long, you know. And so, um, and even though their entire existence is a kind of socialism, I mean, the, 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 the way in which, you know, governments fund rural hospitals and rural airports and um, farming communities, you know, is, is the purest definition of socialist uh, uh, government intervention. But yeah, I, uh, it's, it, it was another thing that drew me to this book, you know, the, the industrial workers of the world in 1909, a union did not represent people of color, did not represent women. It represented the white men who worked in that industry. And the IWW, the Wobblies came along in 1905 and said, it's going to represent everyone. It's going to represent anyone who has a job. Um, and so that just that simple, basic idea. And again, writing about young people was to write about idealism, pure, straight idealism of sharing, of everyone having an equal opportunity, of everyone having a chance. And, you know, I, it, I, I think I, I think those big, sappy ideas do have a place. And I do think that's the future of the Democratic Party, hopefully, is um, is is to you know realize that we are in a second gilded age that billionaires made 670 billion more dollars while 40 million Americans lost work during a pandemic and um, you know I, I if we can't rally behind those economic ideas then I'm not sure what else can happen but I really feel like there's there's something in the idealism of that early union movement that I longed for again well, there's a difference between talking about unions and talking about socialism because anti-union measures here in Missouri, which is deeply red state, have failed and people vote against them in the countryside. So if the Democrats want a way to think about how to do this, they should talk about unions. I think, I mean, I... Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. I agree with you there. Yeah, and and we'll see if they can do it in a way that you know that is more successful than it was in 1980. You know, when when this tide started in the you know, turning the other way. So this is all reminding me. Um, I read a fascinating piece from Alex Rorty at McClatchy, in which a GOP strategist says Democrats overvalued an upper middle class view of the pandemic, and the strategist argues that people believed the pandemic was a problem. They weren't in denial as uh, many of the people in my Facebook feed seem to think Trump voters are, but they just knew that economically they couldn't go through another lockdown. And in your novel, characters go to great lengths and risk death and bodily harm to work. Could you talk a little bit about that mindset? Yeah, that's such an interesting idea. I mean, I, I do think some people are in denial. I think it's, I've thought it's specifically with the pandemic, people don't think, um, it's hard for them to imagine the ways in which the people they come in contact with are also coming in contact with other people. It's almost a failure of math, you know, to uh, um, to be able to understand how exponentially, a, um, you know, a pandemic can spread. But I do think that, you know, there are people for whom work is, um, you know, is is every bit as much a part of their identity as as their um, as the way in which they support themselves, 
one of the great things I discovered in my research, I sort of always assumed that bum and hobo and tramp were synonyms, and they weren't at all. Oh, was, I remember that. It's in like a song or something in the yeah, book. Or, yeah, yeah there's a real, there was a real distinction they made. A bum wanders and drinks, a, a tramp wanders and dreams, and a hobo wanders and works. Um, and Gig and Rye were the kind of characters who would, who would proudly call themselves um, hobos or backs, uh, having a strong back. Um, one of the, the, the language of, of 1909, of these early labor movements, and, it, and so much of it came from songs. I mean, the Wobblies' way of protesting was to march into a town and start singing songs about freedom and equality until they got arrested. And then they would sing in the jail until they got, jailers got tired of them singing and turned them loose. And the, and the language um, was what really drew me to this time and the story along with, you know, kind of the politics of it. Uh, and I, I remember six, seven years ago just writing in my journal the word bindlestiff. Bindlestiff being the, the hobo who carries his, like Charlie Chaplin, who carries everything he owns in a pack tied to his stick. That's his bindle. And, uh, and that word, that's where the word working stiff comes from. It's where stiff, you know, a, a working stiff is someone who comes into town and works. And, and, and I think somehow Republicans have, you know, won a bunch of battles that I don't think they should, including pride of work. And um, and there is a real pride of work. There's a there's a pride of schools. There's a pride of these things that, you know, people. I do think some people were measuring the risk and saying it's worth it. It's worth it to have my kids in school. It's worth it for me to go to my job. Um, this is you know this is my identity and how I support myself. If people want to measure the the dangers and still you know have some sort of open society, great. But um, but we can't do it by putting our head in the sand. We can't do it as as our um, president shit says by um, <laughs> by claiming that the more you test, the more cases you find. You know, we I, I'm just excited to have science back at the table in these discussions. Could you just talk about the character Gurley for a little bit in the book? And yeah, you know, it's funny. I was a newspaper reporter, and I was. Uh, I think I must have been doing a story on Tom Foley, the old Speaker of the House or something, but I was in the morgue, and in the morgue, in an old newspaper, is all the files are done alphabetically, and somehow I came across Elizabeth Gurley Flynn, and um, and I was stunned to find that this this leader of the progressive movement had come to my hometown and led these free speech riots in which 500 people were arrested and had single-handedly, through an act of journalism, defeated these these entrenched powers. And, um, and so I always thought this would make a great subject for a story. And, and for a while I saw her almost as the, as the hero of the novel. And then I realized though, that I, that the hero and the protagonist are kind of different things, you know? And, um, and so, uh, when I, when I set out to write the novel, you know, it was, I had a couple of different instincts as we do when we write fiction, you know, I wanted, I did want to tell this story, but I wanted to avoid being didactic by writing a big archetypal Western. I wanted, this is the end of the West, of, the, of this Western period. Um, I kept thinking of the novel as Deadwood, but with 100,000 people, like the dawn of this civilization. And, and if I was writing a Western, I thought, what if I'm writing one of those stranger rides into town stories, but my stranger is a 19-year-old pregnant girl um, standing on the corner, you know, demanding that we emancipate the vagina, you know, in 1909, 10 years before she has the right to vote. And so 
I still think of her as the heart of the novel. And, um, you know, and Rye, I think of in a way as, you know, he arrives in the mid-1960s, a year before I come on the planet, the year my dad starts work at Kaiser Aluminum. Um, Rye comes, uh, Rye is almost the um, control in this experiment. He's, he's the person who gets to live the life paved by revolutionaries like Elizabeth Gurley Flynn. Um, the entire arrival of the labor movement, the creation of a middle class in America, all these things we can look to, um, you know, to those early activists. So without spoiling the book for our listeners, um, let's just say that at the end of the, the story, we, we jump ahead with a, with a character in the way that I would like to jump ahead from now. And <laughs> you told the story partly from the point of view of reflecting on it decades later, as you were just mentioning. And, and you made a prediction the last time you were on our show, A Dangerous Business, but I want to ask you to, if you could make one more. Um, what is the benefit in fiction of that kind of hindsight? And, and how will we talk about Donald Trump a half century from now? Boy, yeah, uh, uh, I did get in trouble making that prediction. But, uh, I, I'm also the person who uh, yeah, who called his daughters um, on November 8th, 2016, and left phone messages saying, tomorrow morning you'll wake up with the first female president. And they've never let me forget it. So with that, with that caveat, how will we talk about Trump a half century from now? He's the first... Uh, president to lose the popular vote, be impeached, and not win his second term. I think he'll be seen as a massive failure, the massive failure that he is. And I think we've troughed out of this far-right um, time that we're in. It doesn't feel like it, I know, but and I'm a, I am an, uh, a hopeless optimist, but I really think this starts um, a, a kind of recalibration of of politics, um, and that you know, if the, the Republicans are fond of saying that America is center right, center right. If you look at the way Americans feel about most issues, they're not; they're center left. Um, and I, I really think Trump will will be the moment that the Republican Party doomed itself to about a thirty year minority party. Um, uh, anyway, that's may, maybe my predictions of the world I want to live in more than the world I live in. But um, I write fiction for a reason. You know, there's a reason I, I left journalism and nonfiction. Here's to that prediction. And plus, the good news is you've got a long time to wait till we know whether it's true or not. The other one, you had, you, 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 yeah, you that's only true. Give yourself four years. Give yourself 50s better. I will be on episode 23,610 <laughs> of fiction, nonfiction. And we will, and you guys can, uh, you know, with, uh, with President Donald Trump the third, you can uh, you can grill me about how my well, prediction be, went wrong. I'll be living in New Zealand. All right, I'll be I'll be in prison. <laughs> All right, Jess, thank you so much for joining us. It's great to see you. Yeah, great to see you both. Thanks for having me. Listeners, don't miss Jess's fantastic new novel, The Cold Millions. Next up, we're joined by Gerald Walker. Walker is the author of The World in Flames, A Black Boyhood in a White Supremacist Doomsday Cult, and Street Shadows, a memoir of race, rebellion, and redemption, winner of the 2011 Penn New England L.L. Winship Award for Nonfiction. He's published in magazines such as Creative Nonfiction, Harvard Review, The Missouri Review, River Teeth, Mother Jones, The Iowa Review, and Oxford American, and he's been widely anthologized, including five times in Best American Essays. The recipient of the James A. Mishner and National Endowment for the Arts Fellowships, Walker is Professor of Creative Writing at Emerson College. 
His newest book, How to Make a Slave, is a finalist for the National Book Award. Gerald, welcome to the show. Thank you. Thank you for having me. It's really special for you uh, to be on the show with us. As context for our listeners, you were a classmate of wits at the Iowa Writers' Workshop, and your new book is in memory of James Allen McPherson, who's basically the reason that this show exists. Witt and I met four years ago at Jim's memorial service, and he was an important teacher for both of us, although we were his students many years apart. The conversation on the show has for years been kind of enriched and always informed by the common vocabulary of Jim's writing and teaching and conversation. So to that end, we wondered if we could start off by having you read the scene from your essay, Dragon Slayers, which is an essay of yours that I have loved and quoted in other places um, that describes how McPherson workshopped your first story in his class. Sure, I'll be happy to do it. And um, for context, uh, let me say, I don't know what you took courses with Frank Conroy, right? Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, and he was um, quite a contrast to McPherson. Frank Conroy was um, an animal in the room, and he would scream and shout and curse and, and do a lot of pretty intense intense things. And so going to McPherson was kind of a, a different atmosphere, different vibe, different experience. And that was okay, but the thing about it with McPherson for me was he didn't talk a whole lot. And he certainly never talked prior to a piece being workshopped. And I was mildly disappointed in that uh, as the semester went through. And then it came time for my uh, workshop. And I'll pick up the story right where um, uh, I'm about to be workshopped. And I'm feeling slightly disappointed in the way that he has been less vocal than I wanted him to be. Not nearly as much as Frank Conroy. McPherson was a Pulitzer Prize winner after all the first African-American to receive that honor for fiction. He was the recipient of a MacArthur Genius Grant, as well as countless other awards. I wanted his wisdom. I wanted his insight. He gave it mid-semester when it was time to workshop my first story. Before we begin today, he said, I'd like to make a few comments. This was new. He'd never prefaced a story before. A smile crept on my face as I allowed myself to imagine him praising me for my depiction of a den of heroin addicts, for this was not easy to do, requiring, among other things, an intimate knowledge of heroin addicts and a certain flair for profanity. Are you all familiar with gangster rap? McPherson asked. We were, despite the fact that, besides me, all of the students were white and mostly middle to upper class. While we each nodded our familiarity with the genre, McPherson reached into a shopping bag he'd brought and removed a magazine. He opened it to a pre-marked page on which was a picture of a rapper, cloaked in jewelry and guns and leaning against the hood of a squad car. Behind him was a sprawling slum. This person raps about the ghetto, McPherson said, but he doesn't live in the ghetto. He lives in a white, wealthy suburb with his wife and daughter. His daughter attends a predominantly white private school, that's what this article is about. He closed the magazine and returned it to the bag. What some gangster rappers are doing is using black stereotypes because white people eat that stuff up. But these images are false. They're dishonest. Some rappers are selling out their race for personal gain. He paused again, this time to hold up my story. That's what this writer is doing with his work. He set my story back down on the table. Okay, that's all I have to say. You can discuss it now. For a few seconds, the only sound in the room was of my labored breathing. And then someone said, McPherson's right. The story is garbage. Complete rubbish, said another. And so it went from there. 
I did not sleep that night. At 8 a.m. when I could hold out no longer, I called McPherson at home and demanded a conference. He agreed to meet me in his office in 10 minutes. He was there when I arrived, sitting behind his desk. The desk was bare except for a copy of my story, and the office was bare except for the desk and two chairs. The built-in bookshelves held nothing, and nothing hung on the walls. There was no dressing on the window, no telephone, and no computer. It might have been a janitor's office, a place to catch a few winks while the mop floors dried, and McPherson might have been the janitor. His blue shirt was a mass of wrinkles, and his eyes were bloodshot. His trademark hat, a beige straw kangle, seemed to rest at an odd angle on his head. From beneath it, a single braid had worked its way free and dangled rebelliously behind his right ear. He noticed me staring at it and poked it back into concealment. Are you okay? he asked. His voice was gentle, full of concern. You sounded like a crazy man on the phone. Well, I'm not a crazy man. I reached forward to tap my finger on the story and proceeded to rant and rave as only a crazy man could. I did not make this stuff up, I insisted. I'm from the ghetto. I went through the characters one by one, citing various relatives on whom they were based, and I mentioned that, just the week before, my younger brother had been shot in the back while in McDonald's. I told him I had another brother who was in and out of prison, a heroin addict's sister-in-law, and that I had once been arrested for car theft, falsely, but that was besides the point, and that many, many of my friends were still living in the miserable community in which I had been raised. You misread my story, I said in conclusion, and you misread me. I leaned back and folded my arms across my chest, waiting for his apology. Instead, I watched as he sprang from his chair and hurried from the room. He turned left into the hall, and a moment later he passed going right, with Frank Conroy calling after him, and then they passed left again, now with Connie Brothers, the program administrator, in tow. And after two more passes, this awful parade came to an end somewhere out of view. Now Connie stood before me, looking as nauseous as I felt. Jim is the kindest soul on earth, she said quietly. Why? Why would you insult him? For an instant, I saw myself at twelve, looking at a closed front door, behind which was my first love, who had just dumped me and left me standing on her porch, trying unsuccessfully not to cry. Connie magically produced a tissue and handed it to me. She rubbed my shoulders while I rambled incoherently, something about sleep deprivation and McPherson being my father. It's okay, sweetie, Connie said. I'll talk to him. McPherson returned momentarily. I apologized. He told me it was okay that workshops can make people uptight and sensitive. It had been difficult for him, too, he explained, when he was a student there in the 70s. There was a lull in the conversation before he asked, So, where are your people from? He still does not believe me, I thought. I mumbled, Chicago. No, no, that's where they are. Where are they from? Oh, sorry, Arkansas. Mine are from Georgia, he said. He smiled and added, That place is a motherfucker. The essence of black America was conveyed in that response, a toughness of spirit, humor laced with tragedy. But at that moment, all I saw was the man who had rejected my vision. Defeated, 
I thanked him for agreeing to meet with me as I rose to leave. He stood and shook my hand. As I was walking out the door, he called my name. I turned to face him. Stereotypes are valuable, he said, but only if you use them to your advantage. They present your readers with something they'll recognize, and it pulls them into what appears to be familiar territory, a comfort zone. But once they're in, you have to move them beyond the stereotype. You have to show them what's real. What's real, I asked. Without hesitation, he said, you. Ah, oh, that's so good. Those descriptions just really take me back. Um, that first moment of the workshop when you realize that your hoped-for mentor is going against you, that's a killer. But I feel like no matter what he said to you about your work, the kindness that you write about in that essay, that's really the thing that I always remember about Jim. And in the fall of 2016, after he passed away, that was the fall that I met Whitney at his at his memorial. I was guest teaching at the workshop, and I actually ran my class in the office that had been his. And it's hard for me to explain how teaching in that space made me feel. Um, could we all just reminisce about workshop with Jim for a minute before we go on? <laughs> well, you just had mine. Let's hear yours, Whitney. <laughs> well, I, I mean, I was writing about Alaska and he was really into James Fenimore Cooper at the time. I don't know if he ever talked to you about Cooper, but he talked about stereotypes and Western stereotypes in that sense. And his, so my experiences then were mostly that I remember were outside of the workshop. We would go to get barbecue sometimes because he knew I was from Kansas City and he would like want to take me out to lunch at the one barbecue restaurant in Iowa City, which was an example of his kindness. And um, watching like cowboy movies at his house, which was not very far from my house on Rundell, as I recall. He was a sweet man, and, and I learned so much from him. He's like one of the smartest people I've ever met, you know? Uh, anyway. I wonder how many pe of people's memories of Jim are of eating with him and talking about writing at the same time, because um, I'm from Maryland, and he kind of knew that I intensely missed good seafood, and he was like, Sugi, do you know that there's these people from North Carolina who come and sell seafood in a parking lot? I was like, oh, that's cool. And I was kind of like, there's no way I'm going to be able to afford that. Um, and then one day at, at workshop, and they did this on Tuesdays, and, and he was like, Sugi, did you get the seafood? And I was like, you know, no, I haven't had a chance. And he was like, okay, we're going to do it in the break <laughs> in the workshop. Between the two stories, I'm going to take you. So in the middle of class, sort of he and I vanished and the rest of the class was like, where are they going? And then I came back with like a jumbo container of lump crab meat, which I ended up putting in. He always kept a cooler in class um, full of drinks for students. And was sort of this, um, such a welcoming space. Well, one of the things I do think, McPherson was a very nice man, but he, he gave people a lot of shit. He was, he was good at teasing people and he was funny about it. And I, I liked that because that was how I'd grown up with my friends. No, he had a great sense of humor and he would rib people quite a lot. I mean, he was, he was fun in that way. But I, I mean, I think a, a, an additional context with, um, between McPherson and myself that maybe people don't know, uh, McPherson had had a really difficult time with a lot of black writers uh, on the heels of his first publication, uh, Hue and Cry, uh, because one reason was um, Ralph Ellison gave him this extraordinary blurb. And Ralph Ellison, who also was at war with a lot of black um, arts movement writers, Mc, um, what Ellison did was to sort of drop McPherson right into the heart of this long-running battle, this dispute about the role of the black artist. And so when Ellison wrote the blurb on, on the back of Hue and Cry, he took the opportunity to criticize all other black writers. I have that blurb right here on my shelf around the corner. It's really intense. <laughs> it's quite it's quite intense. I mean, I'm sure McPherson was kind of in a pickle. I mean, on the one hand, you want Ellison's endorsement, yes. On the other hand, 
you are now a part of this battle. He's enlisted McPherson on his side in a way, right? I'll read it because it's, it's, it's worth the context. With this collection of stories, McPherson promises to move right past those talented but misguided writers of Negro American cultural background who take being black as a privilege for being obscenely second rate and who regard their social predicament as Negroes as exempting them from the necessity of mastering the craft and forms of fiction. <laughs> Indeed, he makes this hue and cry over the dead ends, the confusions of value and failures of sympathy and insight of those who inhibit his fictional world. McPherson's stories are in themselves a hue and cry against the dead, publicity-sustained writing, which has come increasingly to stand for what is called black writing. McPherson is a writer of insight, sympathy, and humor, and one of the most gifted young Americans I've had the privilege to read. Unbelievable. I mean, wow. just pull a couple of phrases out of that. Uh, misguided writers, obscenely second-rate. I mean, uh, that was that was pretty intense. Now, just imagine McPherson having received that endorsement, and now all of those black writers are pissed at Allison and McPherson, and McPherson, who could at times, you might have recognized this, but he could at times exhibit some paranoia. And so when I arrive to the workshop, fresh from the south side of Chicago, and I'm writing what appears to be in the genre of social protest, uh, not because um, I was a part of any black art, arts movement or, or uh, philosophy, uh, but because I, I did mistakenly think at the time that the role of the black artist was to be a champion for uh, black rights and to criticize um, white oppressors. I mean, I thought that that was my charge. And so, uh, and also something else that should be factored in, I was a young writer. I didn't know what the hell I was doing. I mean, I had a lot of material and I couldn't control all of it. And so what I, what I produced was something that triggered in McPherson kind of a, a response to um, protect himself. And I think he thought that I was, I was going to be one of these people who uh, was angry about the blurb and I would be on attack for him. So he took a preemptive strike. <laughs> I don't think his first impulse was to, this guy's a little misguided. I'll give him some tough love and then I'll help him. No, his, I think his first impulse was destroy this man. <laughs> well, really none of that turned out to be true because you ended up studying with him for a very long time. Well, that's the remarkable thing about it. Um, I was completely out of line. I mean, I was angry, no doubt. But to go in and um, attack him the way that I did, was I, I reflect on that and I can't believe that I did it. And I can't believe that he was big enough to forgive me for it. In that moment, not a week later or a month later or a year later, 10 minutes later, after he calmed down in the hallway, he came back in and he talked to me. And then he gave me the piece of advice that would change the directory of my entire writing career. There's a crucial theme in that essay uh, that replays over and over again in this collection. And it seems it also, I feel, it comes out of McPherson in some ways and some of the stuff we're just talking about. Earlier in that essay, you write, Black literature is often approached as records of oppression, but my students don't focus on white cruelty, but rather its flip side, black courage. Since this is our post-election episode, I wonder if you could talk to us about the role black courage played in the campaign and how well do you think Democrats and Republicans do when they talk about that issue? Um, well, black courage was evident everywhere, especially this year. I mean, if you think about it, the, the pandemic is taking the lives of African-Americans at a rate of probably five times that of, of uh, white Americans and, and maybe higher than any other ethnic group. And then you have the, you've got these militias, uh, otherwise known as terrorist groups, uh, threatening to roam around um, polling sites. You've got the long lines that sometimes last six, seven, eight hours. And you have all of the stuff that are a threat to African-Americans' physical well-being, uh, if not their psychological well-being. 
Uh, all of that is is placed in front of our desire to exercise our basic American right, which is to vote. And yet, we waited in those lines, and we prepared to be confronted by terrorists, and we wore our mask, and we did everything necessary in order to live up to the responsibility of our ancestors, and that is to confront these dragons and do our duty. Speaking of the ways that Democrats and Republicans talk about Black citizens, I've been thinking a lot about Trump's habit of characterizing Democratic-led cities with large Black populations like your hometown of Chicago as violent wastelands. But that's not how McPherson advises you to see what you call the ghetto in that original essay. And it's not how you see it in the later essay, Once More to the Ghetto. So how has the way that you write and think about Chicago changed over the years? Um, Well, to start with Trump, Trump being the type of politician that he is, uh, was calling on these stereotypes of blacks being these violent criminals, drug abusing, alcohol using uh, people to play in the fears of whites. And um, when I started out writing, I was doing the same thing, but I wasn't being nefarious like Trump was. I really thought that it was my responsibility as a black artist to bring attention to some of these uh, difficulties. And it it is true that that's a valuable uh, motive for a black writer. But what McPherson taught me um, is that the, the role of the artist is not to simply protest, but to try to find a level beyond the protest where the universality of the human condition is the main topic of your conversation. That I'm trying to not simply identify myself as being separate from you because of these challenges and, and um, oppressions, I'm trying to show that on the other side of that, we have way more in common than we don't. And it took me uh, that encounter with McPherson, followed by three years of study with him, uh, and and followed by a lot of reading that he gave me, people uh, like uh, Albert Murray and Stanley Crouch, uh, who really talked about the importance of moving beyond the uh, self-identity to try to see what common ground there is among all of humanity. It was uh, the phrase that I associate with that from Ellison is transcendence or trying to transcend circumstance. And you used that phrase a couple times in the essay, in the essay collection, I noticed. I, I do use it. And there's another one uh, that McPherson, uh, McPherson and Ellison and another uh, protege, uh, Albert Murray, talked about, and that's antagonistic cooperation. And what uh, Murray meant by that, Murray in particular um, loved that phrase. But what he meant by it was um, that rather than complain about the presence of these uh, obstacles. You can use these obstacles as an opportunity to um, fulfill your uh, heroic callings. And one thing that Albert Murray would talk about is is a bullfighter and how rather than a matador complaining about the existence of a bull, that's what matadors have to confront, that without the bulls, the matadors cannot perfect their craft. And so McPherson made it clear to me, along with Allison and Murray and others, that don't spend your time complaining about these obstacles. Focus more on the ability to uh, confront them, to battle them, often to defeat them, but even if you don't defeat them, to at least engage in the battle. That that is the tradition of African Americans, and that is how we have survived and even thrived over the course of 400 years. 
That, that idea of antagonistic cooperation also comes up in Ellison's essay, The Little Man at Chiha Station, which was a favorite essay of Jim's that I learned and read in his class. So if people want to look that essay up, we'll put it in the show notes. Donald Trump keeps talking about how he is the best ever president for African-Americans, with the possible exception of Abraham Lincoln. It's one of the most insane things that I've ever seen a person say in public and they say repeatedly. Um, this is a man who a few years ago implied that he thought Frederick Douglass was still alive. I think a lot about how one writes in response to this kind of self-aggrandizement and just comic insanity, but also not comic insanity, and the people who might believe it. I find the space of writing about how ridiculous Trump is a challenge because it's hard to it's hard to make it interesting in some ways, but it's extremely urgent. So what are the terms of this conversation? How do you write now in this particular era? I see I don't I don't find Trump interesting as a subject at all. And I don't I don't I don't write about him. I haven't written about him. Uh, you won't see his name in my book. Not that I boycotted it. Um, I just don't I think that there are more important ways to uh, get at important uh, concepts and ideas and philosophy without talking about Trump. And a lot of people are talking about Trump. So I don't talk about Trump very much. I mean, I write personal essays uh, with the primary goal of revealing something about my character, uh, my values, uh, and my personality. And that's my primary concern, um, because I think that by focusing on those three, then um, other people can see themselves in my work. But I don't, I don't care about Trump as a subject. Well, sorry, because we're going to make you talk about him now for a little while. I can, but I, but I can curse him. So if you want, if you want me to say some bad things about him, no problem. We should run that as like a contest on our show. Just every guest come on, like come up with the most inventive creative writing curse for Trump. Like we can a great collection, and that's an that's an anthology waiting to happen right there. So Gerald, in your essay, unprepared, you say of the serial killer Wayne Williams. I'm quoting here, my belief that blacks could be only so bad was equivalent to the view promulgated since slavery that we could be only so good. And to hold one of these views necessitates the holding of the other. And both views, albeit used for different purposes, place false restrictions on our humanity. So maybe this is a leap and we are here to do such leaps. Is there a way to connect this sentiment to black Trump supporters like Ben Carson, Kanye West, uh, Diamond and Silk, Dennis Rodman, Herschel Walker, and, and so on? What does that phenomenon mean? You picked some good ones, didn't you? Um, that is, <laughs> uh, yeah, that's the, that's the A-list of uh, Trump supporters. Um, uh, there's, a, there's a long tradition in the African-American community of producing traitors to the race. And uh, sometimes these people who are traitors do so in the name of some serious psychological dysfunction, uh, like Wayne Williams. And sometimes they do it for personal gain and personal advancement, like the list you mentioned. So I'm not I'm not surprised to see these people. They've always been around the black community. They always are self-serving, and they always put themselves before the group. You've written a fair amount about your sons in this in this essay collection and their experience living in a mostly white neighborhood in Massachusetts during the Obama years. But these essays and these essays are set before the Trump era. I'm curious about how your family has experienced the past four years. I think it's, it's probably bad news for the podcast, but good news for my sons <laughs> that there, there's been, <laughs> there's been nothing, nothing has happened uh, as a result uh, of the Trump years with my boys. And I've been on edge for four years anticipating that maybe there'll be some um, aggression towards them that, because you see these people on television who are being uh, much more 
um, openly cruel and racist, that Trump has given people a license to sort of rip off the mask and say, actually, I kind of sympathize with the Klan. You're, you seem to be getting that from people. And so I thought maybe with my boys um, who were in high school at the time, uh, they would experience that Trump effect, that their classmates might be more aggressive in their um, racist beliefs. And, but there's been nothing. There's been nothing. And maybe it's because we live in an affluent, uh, liberal-leaning town. But my boys have never experienced any kind of um, hostility towards them during the Trump years or even prior to that. In fact, I'm still waiting, and I anticipate this. I mean, I'm you know, if you read my book, you know that I'm always on edge about race, and I'm always on the lookout for slights and racism. So I'm waiting for my boys to burst into the house one day in tears and say, "This happened," and it hasn't happened yet. There's the scene in that very first essay, which is the title essay for the collection, where you're hiding in the closet listening to them talk about an incident that has occurred, um, and so your concern about you know how they're processing the world around them, but did you ever get to overhear how they talk about Trump himself as the president or what it meant for him to be president or to get over 70 million votes in this last election? I don't know if I would say I was hiding in the closet. I was, I was, sur I was surveilling. I was okay. parenting. You're taking a rest in their closet. <laughs> I know. I was when just they parenting. To be parenting. Just, just, just chilling out. Um, I would, it gave me a good idea. <laughs> I have one kid who's young enough I might be able to still pull that off with. So. Um, What's your question again? <laughs> I, was, got, I got hung up on the hiding. Sorry. It was. It was. How have you ever heard them or talked to them directly? Just not about something that's happened to them in their lives, but about Trump himself, Charlottesville, the things he said after Charlottesville. I mean, the, his openness about being a racist as a president of the United States, particularly after Obama. Sure. Yeah. We we, we definitely talk about it, and um, they they see the news, they see the reports, they hear his comments. And all we can do, I mean, all you can really do is to say, can you believe that? And just kind of shake your head. And uh, to my boys, because they haven't been experienced, have, they haven't experienced that many uh, people like Trump, uh, either in person or on television or anywhere. He just seems like an aberration. Like this is, he's almost a clown in his uh, behavior. And so my boys just shake their heads and they, you know, snicker, and then that's that. But they don't spend a lot of time about it. They were very excited. My youngest turned 18 this year, so we could vote for the first time, so he was happy to vote Trump out. But no, they don't, they don't do anything except roll their eyes about Trump, and, um, and that's it. That's great, because you mentioned you were, that you've sort of experienced the last four years being on edge, and I was wondering if they were also on edge, and it sounds like the answer to that is no. It's no. I have been watching with uh, considerable joy the ascension of Kamala Harris, whose win has had such powerful symbolic meaning, I think, for for Black Americans, for South Asians, for women, um, you know, her complex history, notwithstanding. Uh, how has your family talked about her? What do you think about writing about? I'm, I'm excited to write about her, actually. Oh, she's she's an interesting subject. I could definitely see um, writing something about her ascent. Um, but we're just, I mean, like most people, we are just so freaking relieved right now. Um, that this didn't take the, the turn that I feared it would take. And I, we just couldn't even imagine. My wife and I would just talk sometimes at night uh, about how we would possibly make it through the next four years if this man pulls off this victory. It, it just seemed, and I mean, when he won last time, it was such a shock that nobody really had a chance to prepare for it. It just happened. And you're like, oh, no, now we have to deal with it. But this time, leading up to it for three years and then two years and then one year, 
and it's like this thing coming towards you, which could be an absolute disaster. So you've had a lot of time to worry about it and to stress about it and imagine what if. And so the relief of him being defeated was uh, so extraordinary that I, um, it was almost worth it to go through the hell of the last four years just to see him defeated. I can I can sympathize with that. I mean, I remember I was watching, I watched election returns at Die House, at the Die House with my students and with Sam Chang and, and other faculty members. And and then sort of um, another visiting faculty member, Bennett Sims, and I um, kind of stuck it out until the last minutes for the students who couldn't tear their eyes away because they kept thinking maybe it'll turn around. And sort of with every minute we knew that it wouldn't. And, you know, it was just horrifying. And then after that, um, you know, I was a little bit like, I'm going to walk through Iowa City back to my f- apartment. And can I even do that? Is it, can I do that by myself? I'm going to walk past a fraternity with a giant Trump sign. Really? The Trump sign in, in Iowa City? A giant fraternity? Yeah. I mean, there was a fraternity with a huge Trump sign right, um, you know, sort of diagonally across the street from the workshop. And and so every time I went to the workshop, I had to walk by it and I would feel this wave of nausea. And so, um, I feel like the, that democratic Iowa that Jim sort of liked and wrote about positively in many ways is gone. Well, it was never really the whole of Iowa. I always felt that Iowa city was kind of this, 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 you know, haven, this safe, safe house for, uh, for liberals. I, I couldn't imagine that. A, I mean, sure. You'd see a random Trump sign in Iowa city, like anywhere else, but a giant sign on a frat house, that's horrifying. It, it was really, I mean, actually, I think what that night, I, ben, Bennett walked me back to my apartment because he was actually like, I'm not going to, I'm not going to let you walk back to your apartment by yourself. And, um, and I was glad for the company and, and just sort of, um, that was just such a sorrowful, um, surreal evening. And so, yeah, this, this rush of relief that I feel now, I just really, I, um, I can't imagine the other way. Um, and so thinking about this kind of, right, this audience that we're talking about, this changing, shifting audience, you know, whether it's, um, the Iowa liberals we dreamed of, or maybe maybe they were always a dream. Or, you know, you you write frequently in the second person perspective, and so I think a lot about the kind of writing that makes readers better readers. Because I think that's sort of my that's a lot of the writing that I admire the most. But I also don't want to shape myself for the reception of people who don't really care to know me. So I'm curious to hear you talk about the second person, what it does to directly address the reader in that way, and who you have in mind as an audience when you write from that point of view, what the you does for you. With How to Make a Slave in particular, uh, that essay started as an op-ed. It started as a dare. Uh, Robert Atwan, the um, editor of Best American Essays, I was having drinks with him one night, and he asked me if we were post-racial. This is back during the Obama years, when everybody thought, this is it. We've turned a corner. We're going to be post-racial. In fact, we're post-racial now. And so Bob asked me if I agreed that we're post-racial. And I said, no, not yet. But I think we will be someday. And I think that there's, I know how to get to it. And he said, well, why don't you write an op-ed giving us the steps? And I said, by golly, I will. And um, of course, we were six, seven drinks in, so none of this <laughs> made any sense to me the next day. But I, but I agreed to give it a try. And so I started as a, it was a how-to. How to be post-racial, in fact, was my working title. And as you can see by the final result, that, that idea uh, is no, there's no trace of it <laughs> in the essay. Because I couldn't write it, and I ended up going into a different direction. So it started as a how-to for that piece, and I enjoyed the process. It was my first time writing in the second person, and so I thought I would try it again, and so I wrote another one, um, and it was successful as well, and then I was reminded of a short story collection by Lori Moore, Self-Help, that she wrote back in, I think, the 90s, and I loved that collection, and I thought, 
I'm going to write an entire essay collection in the second person. And everybody warned me, don't do it. It's going to become tedious after a while. And after my third or fourth essay, I thought, this is tedious. <laughs> I, can't, <laughs> I can't continue doing this because you just can't sustain this for 200 pages. It's just it's simply not going to work. So I only did about three with the goal of simply having a collection. I didn't have the uh, reader in mind necessarily, but when I wrote the final second person piece, the essay Breathe, about my youngest, my oldest son having seizures, that essay, I, I wrote it in second person not to place the reader in my shoes, which is what people often do when they write in second person, or at least they think that that's going to be the, the result. I wrote it in the second person to distance myself from the material because it was such a, such a difficult experience and such a painful one that I feared by writing it in the first person that it would become too sentimental at times and I would, um, I would produce an essay that was more um, cathartic and not be able to achieve the uh, level of, of, of artistry with the subject that I wanted. And so I pulled back from it and I did the you so that I would be writing about someone else, uh, less so myself, even though, of course, it's me in the essay. Gerald, thank you for joining us. It's so good to see you. And I'm going to remind our listeners to go get your brilliant How to Make a Slave and Other Essays, which is a finalist for the National Book Award. Thanks for having me, Witt and Sugi. Thank you very much. This was great. that's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This episode is produced by Andrea Tudhope. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. And we want to thank our University of Missouri, Kansas City interns, Mary Hen and Emily Stanley for their work on this episode. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. And please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We also love it when listeners post about the show on social media, tag us, and we'll respond. You can listen, listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the LitHub Radio tab. We'll post a link to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNF Pod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, and on Instagram at fiction.nonfiction.podcast. You can also find video of this interview at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel provide links to all this stuff in the show notes and we'll be tweeting and posting about it during the week. Happy reading and bye-bye Donald. This podcast has outlasted you.